so good. You are so amazing. So, Father, today in this place, we welcome you. We welcome you, Holy Spirit. Have your way, we pray in Jesus' name. Let's worship him. You know, there's so many things I could say about the significant, the significance of blood. And you may not have the biblical background to fully comprehend and appreciate what this represents. But the blood of Jesus <laughs> takes away the legal right for the enemy to own your life. When the Jews were in Egypt and the spirit of death was coming down on the land because of a curse brought on by Pharaoh, the blood of the lamb that was uh, sacrificed was put on the mantles at the doorposts, the windows, and it protected that household from death that would come to steal and to kill and to destroy. And the blood of Jesus is your right to be free from sickness and death. Your, the blood of Jesus is what keeps demonic powers from sneaking into your homes in the night and harassing your children. The blood of Jesus is the barrier between you and the enemies that seek your life. We say thank you, God, for sending your dear son that he would die for us and that the blood of Jesus would be poured out and be a sacrifice to cleanse us, to cleanse us, to cleanse us from sin, to remove any legal right for the enemy to assault us. So we say, in Jesus' name, to every demonic power that is strategized to steal and kill and destroy from the people who hear my voice in this room. We say no in Jesus' name. You shall not pass. You shall not pass. You shall not pass. I extend the life and faith in the life of Jesus Christ into every heart right now. I say to everyone in this room, lay hold, lay hold, lay hold of the promise and provision and sustaining power for your mind, for your emotions, for your body, for eternity. In Jesus' name. Can you say amen? We haven't even begun to see what it means to appropriate the promises of God. We are just barely scratching the surface of the promise. I, I, I always go to this, but I, I love it. Hebrews chapter 6, when it talks about, you know, the provision and the things that are made available for us. And how it's warning said, listen, don't retreat. Don't step back. Don't, don't turn away. Because if you turn away at a certain point, once you have tasted of the fullness of being a son, there's no return for you. And how did he define that fullness? He said, those who have tasted of the powers of the age to come. 
come on, set your heart on this. You are not a nobody. You are not disqualified. I don't care what kind of weakness there is in your life. It's not perfection that gives you the right to tap into your your eternal reward and inheritance. It's the blood of Jesus that gives you the right. It gives you the ability to taste of the powers of the age to come. I want to see the powers of the age to come come out of a people, an imperfect people, a broken people, uh, a people like us, the powers of the age to come. Come on. I declare to you, I say to you, let your spirit rise up and grab a hold of what God has provided for you. I say to everyone in this room, in Jesus' name, you are appointed for more. Come up out of the snare of the enemy. Reject the words of Satan that he has been whispering over your life. I say in Jesus' name, you were born for more than you have tasted. And that goes for every one of us in this room. There's more, there's more, there's more, there's more, there's more, there's more, there's more. I don't care what happened in your family. I don't care what your mothers and fathers did. I don't care about any of the circumstances of your life. It's not enough to steal away the inheritance that has been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. Come on, it's real. It's real. It's real. It's real. This is not religious theater. This is real. Now realize that we are in a battle right now, and it's a legal battle. And the legal battle is being fought when the accuser comes and accuses you to God. And you may think that's significant because there's probably a lot wrong with you. Do you you know what? And that's where guilt and shame leverages our faith in the accusation. But here's here's the problem with that. Jesus is the one defending you, not accusing you. He is the one that is perfect and righteous. He is the one that lived a life without sin. And he's not accusing you. He's defending you. So where should your confidence be? Where should your faith be right now? The enemy is accusing you in a legal way before the courts of heaven. But God said, my son who paid the price for you, is your defender. And if you believe in that defense, here's the thing, if you believe in that defense, you say, I don't receive the accusation. I don't receive the accusation. But if in your heart you feel guilt, if in your heart you feel shame, then that accusation gets traction and pulls you into underneath the power of the curse that comes with the sin. And so God is saying, listen, I've already made provision for you to be completely free from guilt and shame. I've already made provision for you to escape the snare of the accuser of the brethren. I've already, I've already made provision for you. The case is settled. It's going to be thrown out of court because there's no standing So don't believe the accusation. Here's a testimony of what he's talking about. As a kid, I grew up porn everywhere, addicted to porn, got into sexual sin. It was 
atrocious. I was crippled by shame. I'm in Bible college as a young man in my 20s. And anytime I try to move forward to do something for God, that shame is right there. And it took my legs out every time. And so I'm just like, oh, God, there's got to be a deliverance here. So then in this service, an open vision. It's like a screen opened up in midair. Everything else disappears. There's firelight. I'm like, what am I looking at? Jesus' head comes up out of the bottom of the frame, and he's looking at me, and I'm like, what's going on? And then into the frame, whack! He gets hit in the face, and I'm like, what is this? And he turns his head back to me, and he says, is it enough yet? I'm stunned. I don't know what it means. He gets hit again, whack! Blood starts to trickle, and he looks at me, and he says, is it enough yet? And now I'm starting to get a little scared because I'm, I'm stuck in this vision. I can't just close my eyes and get out. I'm, I'm starting to go, ah. Then I see the whip fall across his back and it tears his flesh. And he looks at me and he says, is it enough yet? And at this point, I'm starting to sob. My chest is heaving and I can't get out of the vision. But shame is starting to shake in the background. And the whip falls again. Is it enough yet? And then I see the hand lay down on that cross and the nail gets set against it and I'm screaming in the middle of this service, it's enough, it's enough, it's enough. And shame shattered in that moment and never again has it had a hold. This is real and afterwards you go free. Afterwards you get brave. Afterwards you get into things that you couldn't touch before because the liberty that comes on your life opens up all sorts of possibilities. Now listen, <laughs> I love that. You see, when you, when you discover the righteousness that's provided through him and you don't need your own anymore, it gives you a boldness to access his presence. It gives you a boldness to access what he's given you. But people who haven't crossed over yet, they look at you and say, you're not good enough to be that bold. I know your life. I know your weaknesses. You're not good enough to be that bold. And, and they, ac- they actually end up echoing the accusation of Satan. But it's okay because that's just a test of your confidence. Now, I, you don't understand. I'm not bold because I think I'm great. I'm not bold because I, I'm a perfect Christian. I'm not bold because I did everything right this last week. I am bold because I have confidence in another source other than my own goodness. It's the goodness of Jesus Christ. It's the goodness of Jesus Christ. It's the righteousness of the eternal Son of God. God, we lay hold today of your righteousness. Your righteousness. So I've only told a couple of people this, but... um the sickness that I've been fighting is uh, because my blood is not strong enough to sustain my bones and my heart. And so my bones and my heart keep getting weak because my blood is not strong enough. <laughs> and this morning, God said, it's because you've been waiting for your blood to come up and be strong enough. You've been waiting for something in yourself to have enough faith, to have enough of something, some, some, some backbone of steel or iron in my case and uh, he said it's not your blood that has to be strong 
It's my blood that's strong enough. It flows from my throne. It covers you. It strengthens your heart. It strengthens your bones. You don't have to have the strength. His blood is what makes you strong. There's nothing in you. Don't wait for the strength to come up in you. It's not going to come. It's never going to come. It's his blood. Oh, I just claim that for anyone here who's not even weak, who's not strong enough, who's not, who can't even hear it. For those who cannot hear this this morning, I say yes. His blood is strong enough. It's not your blood. It's not your strength. It's his alone. That's the only only, only righteous source. So we invite you right now, Holy Spirit. There's a promise that says he, he will show us his covenant. He wants to show you the legal language that provides and what the conditions under which he provides and the breadth to which he'll provide so that we know what we're due. He wants to show us his covenant He's saying, listen, I, I vowed I would do something for you, but you don't understand. You don't really see the fullness of what I provided for you. I want to show you that. So ask him right now, Father, show us your covenant. Show us the covenant and the promise. Father, deliver us, God, from this self-consciousness from the awareness of ourselves that steals our focus like the gravitational pull of the earth that pulls us into an orientation and an orbit around ourselves such that we cannot see you or the fullness of what it is you have given to us. God, I pray, set us free. See, the confidence that heaven has that the earth does not have is because in heaven, the provision is clear. <laughs> and there's, it's so hard to represent the disparity between the resources of the kingdom of darkness that in our eyes seem to be so threatening and the supremacy of the provision that is hid in God. And if we could fully see that disparity between what the enemy is throwing against us and the availability, the arsenal of heaven, the weapons mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, we would carry the same peace and the same confidence that rests in heaven. So even today, as we continue to long for his kingdom to come, as, as we contend for the prayer of Jesus, and we say, Lord, your kingdom come, we're saying, God, let the knowledge that creates such calm in heaven be long to us, be ours today. Let it 
cascade down upon our minds and hearts, Lord. See, this is the prayer of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians. He said, he said listen, if you only knew the power that's already at work inside of you, if you only knew, if you only knew the resurrection power, none of these things that seem to threaten and harass and hang over your life would mean a thing. You could walk in such calm and peace without a care in the world if you only saw the supremacy of the provision of God. So, Father, we say we want to pursue your righteousness and your kingdom today. Wipe away the tyranny of fear. Fear is not your inheritance. Fear is not your provider. Fear will not be a shelter. Fear makes a poor taskmaster. Fear is not a refuge. Its dictates will not provide you safety. And there's no amount of distance that fear demands that will ever give you the calm of one drop of heaven's peace. Oh, God, we want to move into the provision. Come on, guys. This is not theater. We're saying, oh, Lord, show me. I want to see this. God, I feel like I live at a distance from what you provided. I feel like I've seen a tiny little glimpse of what you have made available for us. Father, we say we want to be the generation of Jacob that seek your face that come after you with all of our hearts, who find you, who find the fullness. I was a meeting in Canada five years ago, and a lightning rod from heaven came to me, and he asked me a question. He says, why does my church want to crucify me again? It struck me to the core. We're just singing a song that we're saying, it is finished. Faith is something that is legally appropriated. It is not a confession. It is not something that you drum up over and over and over again. The question always is, how come my confession is not producing the results of the cross? And the reason is we don't have a legal standing. We don't have a covenantal inheritance that we're standing in. So my prayer for us, what I see in the spirit is there's a tremendous displacement of unbelief. Faith is coming into the body of Christ like never before. There is an immunity. There is an immunity to the body of Christ that we're appropriating. So Father, I appropriate your covenant right now. I say that the seven statements of the cross are appropriated to us. We stand legally. We stand legally in the blood we stand legally in the blood in this nation so when we say devil you have to go what we mean is the inheritance of the right of sons of god establishes that which has already been done for us amen it already has been done we're just enforcing the covenant so i pray god that we step into this immunity in jesus name yeah let's sing that song god of miracles Father, we declare today, and we know that you are raising up a people unlike history has ever seen or known. Lord, a people who are coming into the fullness of the stature of Jesus. God, that is a miracle. Do it with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Can you say amen?
Let me read a quick scripture. Because I had a, I had a, a picture, and I was thinking, I don't know how this is going to go. I, but I, I was sitting in the prayer room. We were praying this morning, and I would invite you to join us at 9 a.m. on Sundays uh, as we sort of ramp up towards this meeting. But I was sitting there, and I, I, my, my heart was drawn to the shut-ins. The shut-ins. And uh, now, as soon as that, I say that word, of course, we have our own idea what the shut-ins are. And we might be thinking of, of uh, people who medically are stuck in some, you know, small room somewhere with uh, limited access because either they can't walk or they're too sick or they're, you know, whatever that may be. We might be thinking of people in respite homes or old folks' homes who, who you know, are now separated from their family because of COVID measures and who do not have the ability to go out into the public, who are restrained because of their, uh, the weakness of their constitution. And you might be thinking about uh, those that are just, just uh, you know, living on their own but don't have family or support systems around. There's all kinds of shut-ins, not the least of which is, you know, prisoners who are shut in. You know, they're, they're literally locked in jail cells at this very moment. But the shut-in phenomena extends way beyond that, and even ourselves. You could consider, well, we, have, we were shut in for like a year and a half, longest two weeks of my life. <laughs> right? Uh, but uh, there's another kind of a shut-in, and it comes from sin. Sin, and the nature of what sin did when it came into creation is it, is, is it shut us into something. It locked us in to a kind of an orbit, to a kind of an orientation that has limited us from what we were designed to do, how we were designed to function, where we were designed to go and how we were designed to relate to God. The divine shut-in has created this phenomena. Uh, Sin has created this phenomena, a divine shut-in, because God has visited upon mankind the consequences of its choices, right? God is not punitive. He's not saying, oh, yeah, you do that to me? Well, take this. No, no, no. God has simply honored the choice. Do you know that God honors the choices you make? Except when he can't for his own purposes? Right? I mean, honestly, when I think about my testimony, I think I I wasn't out there righteously seeking God. He came and visited me in a bar. And, And in fact, it was at a time when my mom was praying specifically that God would visit me with the consequences of my sin. And so, but he decided for some purpose, before the foundations of the earth, he had some role he needed me to fulfill, and so he came and got me. You know, and he did that through the agency of faith. People were praying for me. People were believing for destiny to visit me, and he did. But, But basically, God visits us with the consequences of our sin. And this is what happened in Genesis chapter 3. I won't read the whole thing. It's Adam and Eve. They've eaten of the tree. You know the whole story. And right after they ate of the tree, so let me see where should I start. Uh, the serpent sort of beguiles Eve, and Eve gives to Adam, and Adam eats. And then in verse 7 of chapter 3, it says this, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. 
And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Coverings. That's the, that's the essential word there. That's the operative word that we're looking for, coverings. They made, made, they made for themselves coverings. And that's, that's, right in that statement is the DNA of the shut-in nature of our entire lives that Jesus came to redeem us from. The propensity, the need to cover ourselves with something temporary in order to not reveal our nakedness. Uh, if you know the Bible, there should be all kinds of convergent thoughts around different scriptures that speak about the nakedness. Particularly uh, peculiar and significant among them is, is the one in Hebrews chapter 5. But uh, in chapter 4, we are, we are naked before him to whom we must give account. And so what came into man was not this noble thing, was not this righteous thing, but something unrighteous, something ignoble, something contrary to God's plan for us because God never meant for us to create our own coverings, to hide ourselves, to be shut-ins behind a veil of our own making. This was the result of sin. Sin came down, I I guess I should read the rest of the passage, but sin came down and created an orientation that was based on fear, on self-awareness that propagated a kind of fear that made us feel hostility in our environments that up to that moment we never felt. Adam and Eve, up to that point, were entirely content in their nakedness and were so unaware of themselves that they walked around naked. Shame was not something they had ever felt. There was no, there was no need, no, no, no need to, to compare themselves to others because they weren't aware of what they have or what they didn't have. They just enjoyed their existence. But it says uh, they made for themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And you can read the rest later. I think you know how it goes. This newfound self-awareness institutes a series of activities and responses to their environment in a, that they never previously would have, the, a way they never previously would have responded. They responded instinctively with fear and hiding. Fear and hiding, fear and hiding. And that has been the story of humankind since since that time, that we exist by fear and hiding. We exist by escape. We exist by covering. And so here's, here's what it comes down to, is that, that this thing that came on mankind has given us an energy that drives us in one direction. And it, hides, it is toward hiding. And so we... As, and as we indulge that, we become increasingly paranoid, fearful, and insecure about the world that's out there. And what happens as you indulge that fear in your life, as you indulge that need to be covered, then you, then you interact 
outside of that safe place less and less and except under ideal conditions. What are those conditions? Those conditions are that the covering that you create for yourself gives you adequate safety and a sense of well-being and, and shields you from the world around. But underneath that, and this is the thing, underneath that, there's pain, there's fear, there's suffering, there's isolation, there's loneliness. And at the core of every human being today, there's a deep, deep desire to be known. And at the same time, there's this terrific fear that compels us to remain in hiding and to test the circumstances of the world around it, us to see if it's safe enough to come out. And then we put the onus and the responsibility on the world around us to be safe, to indulge our fear, our shame, our lack. And we live in this hostile juxtaposition against a world that we deem to be hostile when really it's because we're indulging this thing inside of us and we have no ability to escape it. Jesus, and it struck me, the same passion and desire that the shut-ins have, you know, in that natural way, want to interact with people. We have that. We have this desire to interact with people. You may be here and you may be thinking, well, I'm a believer. I, I can do this. But the truth is we do this in measures even when we are born again because we don't really, as we've been saying and praying and singing, we don't really understand the provision that's been made for us. You see, what God wants to do is he wants to make you so safe, so filled, so free from shame, so uh, unmoved by the need to be what the world and what people around you needs, needs you to be, that you just are completely yourself. But we don't have the ability to do that. So we live with veils. And those veils, if we're good at it, can change on a dime. We can pivot in a second based on the circumstance. Because around this group of people, this is who you need to be. Around this group of people, this, this is who you need to be. And what, we, what do we do when we get tired of doing that and, we're, and it's sapped all of our strength and we can't you know, be out there in the world? Then we, then we go and we, we retreat. I need to refurbish my strength so that I have the courage to face another day. So only in the safety of retreat and isolation do we ever actually feel completely free to take the mask off. And what Jesus is, makes us, you see, what, he, what he's trying to do with you and with me is he's trying to make us, absolve us from any need to create any kind of a covering, any kind of a distance, any kind of, that it gives us the power of intimacy with anybody and everybody. And so the trajectory of this, and I'm already out of time, the trajectory of this is that you get freed and you taste of that freedom, right, to a certain degree, and you start to have relationships with Jesus and with the world around you in a way you never had, but it's, you've only tasted of that in a measure, 
And then you come around another group of people, another circumstance, and they reject you, and you feel the pain of that. And then you, you, you start to go back, well, in this world, I need to be this. And tragically, the church, the place, the community of the beloved, where we should be most free, most able, we're not even free to be there. Now, it does not absolve us from the responsibility to take hold of the provision. But what leaders do in our life is they courageously emulate nakedness. That's what they're supposed to do. But historically, that hasn't been the case. And what we've done, we've substituted just one covering for another covering. We've just modified the persona. So in this world, this is what we champion, and you must be this. And if you don't be this, we will be as dissatisfied with you, as, as angry and as harsh and as, as hostile, even more so than the world was. And that's the history of the church. You ever wonder why people, you know, curse the church? Well, they're fallen. And, but also because the religious church, the system has not been what it's supposed to be. But what, here's what God is doing in your life. Is he's wanting you to draw into his presence to receive so much <laughs> endorsement. That's what it is. It's endorsement. It's when the father says to Jesus, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased. If you could, see, when, we, when we're worshiping, I'm doing this, but I don't know how much you're doing this. We're drawing near to God, and we hear the approval of his voice. It says, you are my son. You are my daughter. It's, it's, it's more complex than that. I wish I had more time. But he's, he's speaking these words that liberate us from the need to hide. And leaders in the body of Christ can be defined this way. They just don't hide. And because they don't hide, they become the focal point of the abuse and accusation, first starting with the religious. (laughs) More than anybody. (laughs) But it's the courage and the faith that comes from having encountered God in an increasingly deep way that liberates us from the need to perform. Because we realize the only path is to live openly. Because the reality is, even the people that accuse you, even the people that are hostile to you, even the people that, that demand that you be, make a, a safe place for them, desperately want to come out from behind their coverings, but they just can't. But they gain courage from your love. They gain courage from your acceptance, from your, you are God in their life. Until they fully meet God. You are, you are, you are a, a, a trail of breadcrumbs toward the great emancipator. If you exemplify that same capacity to endure. So today, I realized what God is trying to, as a father in the faith, a mother in the faith, what God is trying to make you into is somebody who is not naive He doesn't see, it's not that we don't notice people's imperfections, but we realize focusing on what's wrong with them and saying and creating distance, say, you can only come to this church if you're perfect. You can only worship if you're this, that, and the other thing. 
that only exacerbates the problem. But we are people whose hearts are open. I tried to I tried to figure it out earlier in my life, and I know I'm going over. I tried to figure it out early in my life. I thought, what is it that makes these leaders so attractive? And I think, well, it's the anointing on their life. It's the power. It's this. Yes, 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 yes. The gifting, the anointing, the power. uh, You know, all the things that God gives on that level. Yes, yes. But underneath it, the real magic is love. The real magic is that they are free. And because they're free, they're not needing you to serve them. And they're approachable, and you feel something around them because they're approachable. And yet at the same time, they expose the coverings that you are using to make yourself feel safe. Is this dichotomy is so odd. But listen, we are called to exemplify freedom, to be free from fear. I, this weekend, and I just enjoyed it so much, I, I got the chance to be with some, some of my heroes, people I just love and I'm just so glad to be with, and they lent their bandwidth to this event. But being with them, it's just it's so relaxing. It's, for me, it's so relaxing because I know they're not judging me. And their hearts are wide open. And there's an intimacy that happens. So, Father, we pray today that I make us able to pull down the veils. Make us able, Lord, to open our hearts fully to one another. May others... Look at us and marvel at the uh, capacity to enjoy one another. I pray in Jesus' name.